Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Hello, thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. We are the show that tackles some pretty tough topics. And right now we have a topic that some people think is controversial. I don't particularly think it's controversial, but some people do. And we're going to go if, uh, see if we can get to the bottom of it and uh, just discuss what this is. And I'm talking about the hashtag MeToo movement. And I have a guest with me who uh, is uh, ready to talk a little bit about the implications, what it means. Jennifer Hunt, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Jennifer is an education and outreach specialist with the Sexual Assault Resource Center, and that's in Texas. And she focuses primarily on prevention education and community outreach and specializes in crisis intervention advocacy and case management and works with women in low-income and immigrant populations. Thank you for joining us, Jennifer. The topic that we're talking about is the hashtag MeToo movement. Now, it's gotten a lot of press, and I must confess that along with a lot of other women that I've spoken to, my first reaction is, yay, but I do have some questions about it, okay? Mm -hmm. So hopefully we can hash those out today. And, questions um, are always good. Jennifer, yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, in light of the Bill Cosby findings and, you know, all of this other stuff, um, it, you know, it's kind of like the time has come where after decades of, um, you know, overt sexual assault and covert sexual harassment, uh, women are finally being heard. Um, and my question is, wh why now? Where did this come from? Well, I think, um, and, you know, I try not to focus too much on the role of technology when what we're seeing is survivors speaking up and coming forward with their stories because really they're doing the hard work of this movement and um, they're really, they're the ones that are going to be transforming uh, the way that we talk about this. But I do think that technology does have a role in why this conversation is happening right now and the way it's happening. And I think what that role is, is a diversification of outlets, of ways that people can kind of publicly tell their story. And so whereas um, previously you might have had to be a journalist or a politician or somebody with some kind of platform to be able to publicly speak to your community about instances of sexual assault or sexual harassment, now you have to have a smartphone, right, or a computer. And you can access the your greater community either um, online or locally, right, depending on who you interact with online. Um, and talk about those stories of sexual assault and sexual harassment and have a platform you might not otherwise have um, if we didn't have this kind of um, wide web that we have access to. 
Yeah. Well, that certainly explains the, the, you know, catching fire of this whole thing. But do you think maybe it goes deeper than that? Do you think it's just time where women are starting to be taken, or maybe I'm just Pollyanna-ish here, but I think it's a, a time when uh, women are being taken more seriously. Um, a lot of times people still feel a lot of threats about women and uh, women in authority, women in power. Um, but I think as a, as a general rule, women are being taken more seriously. I mean, I'm thinking back to my childhood when we would watch the old Doris Day movies and where, um, you know, she would always slap him across the face and get away with it because that was acceptable. And she was always the, you know, charming little coy, little whatever. And he would laugh or, I mean, I think there were even, uh, I think I remember some Western once where it had John Wayne in it and even turned her, the woman over his knee and spanked her. And, you know, I mean, it was just such a such lack of validation for whatever that woman's role was in the movies. And of course, I think you can argue: does media establish our culture, or does it reflect our culture? But I think, in that respect, it did reflect it. I remember the old "I Love Lucy" shows that were were reruns, and a lot of people still love those. I hated the "I Love Lucy" show. She was such a bimbo, and she always acted like what's his name, Desi, was her daddy. You know that she had to keep secrets from, and you know, I, I mean, I just hated that stuff. But I think that was typical of the culture at the, at the time. Certainly. Um, we have moved from that, have we not? And does that cultural shift, first of all, am, am I right in your opinion of, of what's happening culturally? Um, and secondly of all, do you think that has something to do with the, this being taken more seriously? Well, you know, I think that it can it can be um, some of both. So maybe we are taking it more seriously when we are having a conversation, when we're talking about this um, with our peers. But I'm not so sure that we have really shifted in the concrete ways that are actually going to affect instances of domestic violence and sexual assault. Um, so, you know, are we seeing higher prosecution rates? Are we seeing um, real rehabilitation programs um, that actually, or prevention programs that actually prevent and rehabilitate people that are perpetrating these crimes? Um, do we see um, support systems like rape crisis centers, domestic violence um, shelters, uh, therapists that specialize this and, and uh, provide low-income um, counseling for survivors of these kinds of assaults. Are we are we supporting those systems as a community? And unfortunately, I'm not sure that we are doing a good job of both having that conversation and taking seriously the word of survivors, but then following up with, okay, so we believe you, now how do we support you? And so there, it feels very much like um, kind of two steps forward, one step back in a lot of ways, because we are having this conversation. And I think that this is how culture does change. And this is, you know, um, movement and resources and development does not just spring out of nothing, right? It springs out of long-term hard work and, and people providing wisdom and careers of commitment to changing a situation. And I think that we are definitely on the precipice of um, working on these issues, of moving towards a place where um, we're actually providing meaningful um, prevention and intervention for sexual assault and domestic violence and these kinds of things that people experience. But I think that we're just there at the beginning, um, you know, and it's it's kind of discouraging to think about when you say, well, it feels like we've gotten better from I Love Lucy, and but we're still having to have these issues, you know, and so we're seeing 40, 50 years of, of kind of slow movement right there. Um, 
But I do think that that's the pace that this is moving at, unfortunately. Um, we, we are seeing slow growth, but it is growth. Um, and that is looking at, in, or that is looking like right now, giving survivors the space to tell their story and to be believed, um, to be witnessed for what they've experienced. And then I would love to see from that witnessing a development of real support services and resources for survivors that are available universally. Well, there's two questions that come to mind for me, um, and obviously, I, you know, I was I was joking with somebody last night, and I said I probably am the last, the oldest living American woman who will confess that she is, in fact, identified as a feminist. I am a feminist, okay? I don't, you know, <laughs> yeah. I don't know when that word became something that even young women don't want to use. I, I don't understand that, but anyway, um, I was having a conversation last night. I was actually recording a radio show with, with a couple of men, and the, the topic came up of one of the men said that he feels that masculinity is slipping, the definition of masculinity, or that, that, that men are losing their masculinity. Mm-hmm. And he, of course, couched that in all sorts of terms, like I'm all in favor of equal rights, I'm all in favor of blah, 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 blah. You know, <laughs> you, know yeah. you know what I'm saying here, right? Um, right. But... But I feel like men are, have lost their backbone. And I said, well, so you're defining masculinity as backbone? Is that how you're defining right. masculinity? You know, because, <laughs> right. you know, I, I don't know. I know some people. Right. Yeah, yeah. Which I think um, is a concern and, because, you know, humans have backbones, right? So when we yes. assign something like having kind of fortitude of self, we ought not to just align that with, um, you know, a mass with one type of identity, right? There can be lots of types of identity that have that fortitude of self. So that's why I said it was problematic. I just wanted to clear that up. Sure. Yeah. Well, and but I mean, our our culture, our our psychology, you know, has a long history of defining sexual norms using different words. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so where it's for a man, it's a backbone, but for a woman, it's stubborn. Where you know, for mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying here, exactly. right? Um, right. Yeah. So, so we define these terms differently based upon gender. Um, I think, in my opinion. But mm-hmm. what uh, our conversation then strayed to the hashtag Me Too movement, mm-hmm. and I know there have been several actors. One of whom, of course, is you know, I mean, don't get me started on this guy, Alec Baldwin. Mm-hmm. How this man maintains respect and a following is beyond me because I think mm-hmm. he's as creepy as all hell. Um, but that's just me, okay? And he and and others, men, have come forward and said, you know, this movement's gone too far. It's a witch hunt now. It's too far. You know, it's gone too much. Right. Made me think of the gentleman yesterday who was talking about um, men losing some sort of power. Um, and I made the analogy of, you know, you you have you have a pie, and somebody gives you a quarter of the pie. You go, okay, I've got a quarter of a pie. Everybody else has more pie. And then suddenly you get half a pie. And you're going, yippee, skippy, I now have half the pie. But if you're the one who had the three quarters of a pie, and right. now you have half a pie, you see that as a loss. Right. You see that as real steps backwards. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering if that's kind of what we're seeing with some of these men who are um, – and I, I'm saying men because those are the only ones I've read about or heard about. Maybe there are women who are, are um, balking uh, uh, and, and kind of rebelling against the hashtag Me Too movement as well. I have, I'm not familiar with them. Um, but is that what we're seeing here? I mean, is it kind of like a 
well, we've had three-quarters of the pie, and now we're getting half of the pie, and we don't like it? I think I think that that could be part of it, but I think that this comes down to the very nature of kind of how we perceive as a culture the the testimony of women. Um, I think a lot of the frustration, and I have heard not just from men, but I've had a concern or this kind of identifying the Me Too movement or just a a conversation about sexual assault and sexual harassment as turning into a witch hunt. I've I've heard this multiple times from lots of Mm -hmm. different, um, you know, identity groups, right? And I think that... um, with with those, a lot of that comes down to the concern that what is happening is women are speaking about their lived experiences and they're being believed. And that is very unsettling to a lot of people. So for them, they they it's not enough that somebody says, um, you know, I experienced this. This is this is what happened. This is where it happened. This is what um, you know how I felt, and this is the consequences that it had on me. And I am I am telling this to you as another human being, and then that being repeated kind of over and over and over again um, by by many different sources, um, and then that being believed and that having an effect on other people's lives, I think is is very startling um, for a lot of people because we don't put a lot of um, support and kind of trust in what women have to say, um, and that comes up. That comes up in a variety of spaces where kind of women's opinions are devalued. You know, they're told to kind of be quiet. Um, you know, to not make a mess, to to shut up and sit down and look pretty, and those kinds of things. We're we're all very familiar with this, and I think what is happening here is that status quo of kind of a quiet woman is a good woman um, is being challenged, and it's being challenged in a way that it is having real um, financial and cultural and political and, you know, a variety of different real impacts um, because we are listening to the testimony of women and saying, I believe you and I'm going to do something as a result of what has happened to you. And I think that that is, that is concerning to a lot of people who are very used to kind of not needing 80% of women can tell you a story of sexual harassment in the workplace. If we just don't believe those women, then we don't have to see what is wrong with ourselves, what's wrong with our workplaces, what's wrong with our culture, um, that, you know, a vast majority of women are experiencing hostile workplaces, um, we don't have to deal with that because we just don't believe them. And so I think what's upsetting is that we are now believing them, um, at least in this moment, and that we're seeing actual consequences from them being believed. Uh, and I think that, again, is a, a startling experience for a lot of people. Well, and I think you're making a good point there because women are not believed. I mean, right. we say that they are, but they're not. And and we do no. a lot of shows here on the court systems, on family courts. And mm-hmm. I always say that the family courts operate under three assumptions, all of which are inaccurate. One is that if a man abuses his wife, he's not necessarily going to abuse his children. Well, right. children suffer from seeing their mother abused, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, the second assumption is that every child needs every father. Um, and that children will suffer terribly if they're not, you know, given access to to their father. Um, And, of course, you know, you can make the, you know, I mean, it seems to me pretty cut and dried that a child doesn't suffer if they're taken away from somebody who's hurting them. Um, And the third assumption is that women lie. She lies. Mm -hmm. She lies. 
Every time a woman goes to court and says, you know, my child was sexually abused by their father, blah, 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 the first assumption is that she's lying. Right. And we that see she's this trying document, to manipulate the, the information or the situation yep. to, to get yep. to exact some kind of unfair consequence. Um, this is exactly. repeated, and it's not just in the criminal justice system. I mean, this is even repeated in kind of our, our you know, our daytime television, right? Um, this is a very common trope that we encounter constantly. Okay, tell me about daytime television, because I don't have a TV. I don't watch this stuff. So why are you saying that? What's happening on daytime television? <laughs> well, you know, for so for instance, um, a lot of times, so in the vast majority of stalking cases, um, both with female victims and male victims of stalking, the perpetrator of that stalking is a man um, in, in the vast majority of cases. Um, and what's what I always think is interesting about that is if you watch television, if you watch movies, typically – if a woman is going to be, if somebody is going to be presented as a stalker, participating in stalker behaviors, it's going to be a woman, right? The woman that just can't let go, the, you know, the... The crazy the, ex-girlfriend. The, the crazy ex-girlfriend, the, the one that you yeah. broke up with who just can't let go of you, right? She stalks you. She, you know, she shows up yeah. at your house. She ruins your marriage. You know, all of these be, kinds of things. Because you're this such is, a wonderful catch. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, the idea, the idea, though, is that regardless, and this is, this is true, right? Regardless of what somebody does, they should not be stalked, right? But the idea, right, is that this person is, is a victim of stalking and it's, and it's a woman that's doing it. And I'm not saying that there are not female stalkers because there absolutely are, um, but the vast majority of stalking perpetrators are men who perpetrate against men and women. And so, you know, that's yeah. just one example of how a form of sexual violence um, is kind of is turned on its head when we're when we talk about who's the victim or who's the survivor and that has a I'm sorry who's the survivor and who's the perpetrator and that has a lot to do um with how we how we can conceive of these crimes when we walk in and we're members of a jury, right? Um, and so yes. all of those things have an impact. So when I bring up daytime television, you know, we're sorting out what we think about sexual violence and domestic violence and healthy relationships and red flags. We're sorting all of that out on a, on a daily basis through the media, and we're reflecting ourselves, but we're also kind of modeling behavior. Um, and so I think that we do have to, to look at, you know, how women and their testimonies are are presented on the media because that's going to have an effect on how people then go out into the world and say, how am I going to, how am I going to kind of understand the testimony of my friend who is now telling me that they've been assaulted? Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I see your point exactly. And um, so what, what we're doing here is we first of all have the assumption that women are not accurate, either maliciously inaccurate or they just are, I don't know, too stupid or something to tell the truth or recognize it. Or they're, 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 Women have this fatal flaw that, that they're not right. believable, they're not trustworthy, um, they overreact, and the, so therefore we have to take everything that they say with grain of salt um, right. and, and make assumptions accordingly. Um, and that, of course, is, you know, I mean, I, I suspect I'm much, lar- or much larger, I'm probably larger than you, but uh, I also suspect I'm, I'm pretty much older than you. And this was kind of the, the, the go-to position when I was growing up. Um, the, you know, as I mentioned with the TV shows and everything, women just were not to be taken seriously. And it's very um, much yeah. still the status quo. So, you know, you brought up the Bill Cosby case and in and in and you know, 
we can talk about Bill Cosby, but we can also talk about 211 other men that have kind of been accused of oh, multiple yeah. sexual assaults since April of 2017. So we don't have, but he's kind of the latest that we talked about. And with and with him, you know, he had um, over 60 named and named accusers, and there were more multiple anonymous accusers um, over, you know, a a um, 30 to 40 year time span. And still, when those jurors walked out of the second trial um, and said what it was that got them, it was not the testimony of the 60 plus women. It was Cosby himself, um, you know, admitting in a deposition that he he gave quaaludes to women. So even even in even in the second trial, you know, where you have 60 women who are saying, I we can show you a pattern of behavior over 40, 50 years um, where drugs were being used to sexually assault us. And and here is the laundry list of crimes that have occurred to us over these years. Even then, the jury walked out and he said, look, it was his deposition. He said he did it. You know, so right, you know, when I heard that, um, I was thankful that, um, you know, I was thankful that Bill Cosby admitted what he did, because I think that that can be therapeutic um, for survivors to say, see, I didn't make it up. He he admits that he did yeah. it. And I, I am glad that he was ultimately prosecuted for his crimes. But I wish that that jury had said it was the, the strength of the testimony of those those accusers. It, I believed those accusers and I knew that they were telling me the truth and that's why I prosecuted or that's why I came down with a guilty verdict. Um, and still that was not the most valuable evidence in the room was not the survivor's testimony. Well, do you think that you might just be misinterpreting that? I mean, maybe they were, whoever said that felt that that would be, was the, like the, the, the nail in the coffin or something. Yes, of course. Rather than the that, that definitely yeah. could have been it. But I do think that um, especially um, we focus a lot on the perpetrator. And I think it's and, you know, I think especially if you're being interviewed about something like this, um, you know, there it would be wonderful if we could hear um, some 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 support and some validity put behind survivors. Um, it was just kind of disappointing that that was not the nail in the coffin. Was the, the was you know the sixty women that kind of came before? Yeah. It was the one man that admitted to it. Now here's I think where things get murky though, and and this is where they get murky for me. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking. There's a difference between sexual assault at least in my mind, and I think in a lot of people's minds, and either harassment or, um, um, I, I can't think of other words, but, but when we're talking actual assault, I don't think anybody has a problem with trying to nail somebody once they're convinced that that person did the, that. I think when things get murky is like, and, and I'm trying to remember the name of the actor, I, uh, uh, Aziz or something, I think is his name. Aziz and where, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where um, the the woman came through and said, "Well, you know, she dated him several years ago, but she felt pressure to have sex." Is that a a sexual assault? I mean, that's been going on for millennia on both sides of the gender gap here. And if you pressure someone to have sex with you, it's not a very nice thing. But 
is that does that meet the standard of harassment or assault if it's a one-shot thing? I mean, I think it's things like that where people start going, wait a minute. You know, I mean, I'm all for women who have been assaulted to be able to be heard and get, you know, vindication of some sort. But you felt pressured because you went on one date and and nothing happened. He didn't force you. You he just you just felt that he was he was trying to pressure you. I to well, me, think, that's so, like watering down the whole sexual assault thing. Well, I actually, so let me push back a little bit, and I'm going to come at this from kind of a micro and then a macro perspective. So first I want to address the actual NZs and sorry situation, and because I do think that that was a really wonderful moment where we saw how um, bad we are necessarily at having this conversation as a nation. Um, because in the case of NZs and sorry, um, I think that most professionals that work in – I shouldn't speak. I read that article um, and that description and and immediately labeled it as a sexual assault, not simply because there was pressure to have sex. But in that story, that survivor says multiple times, I told him I didn't want to have sex. I told him that if we kept going, I was going to hate him. I told him I didn't want to feel pressured. And he continued to do things like, um, you know, manipulate her body into sexual positions after being told that, right? He continued to take off clothing or try to remove her clothing after being specifically told that she did not want to have sex or continue on with this. You know, she told him, let's not do this. Let's put our clothes back on. And then he would remove his clothes again. So at, at the point that somebody is telling you, do not, I do not want to have sex with you. I don't want to be naked with you. I don't want to be touched by you. I don't want to participate in sexual activity. And that person continues to do that. Um, that's when that goes clearly into kind of the area of assault, especially if there's physical contact happening between those two people. Um, and so that article really showed me how how much work needs to be done because so many people read it and said, well, you know, there was no penetration. That's not assault. But really, at the end of the day, the only reason that was not a sexual assault and or a, a true rape uh, or that, I'm sorry, excuse me, that was not a completed rape was because he was not willing to physically force her to do it, right? So he was willing to pressure her, to emotionally manipulate her, to not offer her a way out of the building or a ride home. You know, he was her transportation. He also brought her into a locked building. Um, he's a celebrity, so calling for help, I'm sure she felt pressure to not call for help because there might be outside publicity that would find out about it. And then that that, you know, puts concerns for her confidentiality. Um, but in that situation, you know, if she had finally said, if she had finally kind of given in to all of the pressure, that would have actually, that would have absolutely been a sexual assault because she really was not given an option in that situation over and over and over again. But the reason it didn't result in a completed rape is because he wasn't kind of willing to physically force her into it, right? Um, she finally yeah. extricated herself from the apartment, and that's when the pressure and the situation ended, not when she expressed not wanting to have sex. Um, and so well, I and think one of the things that I was going to say to you is, you know, because the, to be devil's advocate here, uh, you know, everybody is hearing you say that story about she was there and she was telling him, no, she didn't want to, she didn't want to. And the first question that anybody would ask is, well, then why doesn't she just get out of there? And right. you responded to that, uh, I think, very well. There are reasons that women don't just pop up and leave, whether it's domestic violence or whether it's a, a, a case like that. Um, there, It's never as simple as just, okay, then I'm out of here, you know. Um, and then, so thank you for, for going into more detail about that. 
Oh no, and you know, I am by no means an expert on this case, and but what I what I do want to just make clear is that individual was the there were two people in that room, right? So we have we have two experts on that situation, and one of them walked away saying I was sexually assaulted. I had anxiety afterwards. I had to contact my support system. You know, I felt scared afterwards, and I'm speaking out about it because this man represents himself to be an advocate for women and also because he writes books on modern romance and relationships. So I feel the need to 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 shed my experiences on him here. And so, you know, we can argue back and forth about sexual assault and and et cetera, et cetera, but the person who experienced it is telling us what it was. And I I would hate for us to go in and debate what her experience was, right, when none of us mm-hmm. were there. Um, well, I think the concern that a lot of people have is this is ruining careers, um, itty boo, um, but I'm just going to say it. You know, a lot of people have concerns mm-hmm. that they're, I mean, uh, who was it, Tom Brokaw? I mean, some of these people that have been around for 40 years all of a sudden, all of this stuff is coming out, and it's ruining their careers at this point in their lives, and people are antsy about that. They're going, wait a minute, this is a person who's had a whole, you know, I mean, you know, for 40 years he's been in the public eye, or 30 years, and, and he's been wonderful, and blah, 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 and now these vindictive women are just coming up and making up these stories and ruining their careers. Right. Um, I well, think that there's some of that perce- perception. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I I think you're spot on that that conversation is being had. Um, but I think that it's ultimately inaccurate um, because a lot of these people that we're talking about are really at the pinnacle of very long and um, and and um, money filled. I, I'm blanking on the word careers. Right. So, for instance, Bill O'Reilly um, filed or had five different sexual harassment and, and verbal abuse settlements um, between 2002 and 2017. He cost his, his company $13 million. Um, and, and there were actual recordings of him participating in this behavior. So it wasn't, you know, this wasn't just the word of women. There was literally evidence of him committing sexual harassment, and his companies decided to cover that and, you know, settle and and keep him there. And so I think that we need to remember that um, none of these women, like these men's careers are kind of built on the destroyed careers of the women that they harassed over decades. Um, and that those companies covered for them until they just couldn't cover anymore. So this isn't, um, you know, like a witch hunt where, one, women lost their lives, and two, it was often a singular rumor, right, that would take down, quote, unquote, witch, right? Um, in this case, you have dozens of accusations and evidence and settlements and, you know, negotiations that go in until finally that company just cannot deny the fact that they're keeping a serial abuser employed. Um, and mm-hmm. so none of these situations were um, were predicated on a singular event. Almost all, or I'm sorry, all of them that, to my knowledge, um, were were kind of established over a a pattern of behavior um, over years in their career. So to say that this is somehow you know men falling on a, a single sword is just not looking at the facts of of what actually is happening in these. Um, in these situations, you know, Harvey Weinstein, the first allegation for him came in the 19 in the 1970s. 
So he has 87 accusers of and 13 different rape accusations. Um, and they have settled eight different times with him. So, you know, this is not this is not a man that kind of gets a single accusation and then he's out his 40 years of prestigious and beautiful career. This is, you know, people finally saying enough is enough. Um, mm -hmm. You've ruined careers, you've ruined workplaces, you've abused and you've left people shattered and we're, and we're not going to pay those settlements anymore or we're not going to, you know, hide this as an HR issue anymore. Um, yeah. Uh so when but when we're talking about this part of the thing that confuses me is as I said a little while ago you know obviously sexual assault you know the way you explain that uh, uh, that actors I, I can't remember his name Aziz Azira and sorry yeah what? and sorry yeah, and sorry, and sorry, and sorry, sorry. Yeah. yeah okay Aziz uh, I'm sorry um you know that I didn't see that in the media and so um you know that you, you know I I would agree that you know that was uh, certainly harassment and and the nth degree um but and, you know and that is... but that's kind of i'm sorry i'm so sorry i i wanted to say but that no no that's go symptomatic ahead go of, i love your that's enthusiasm kind of, <laughs> sorry. um that's kind of in, symptomatic of exactly what we're talking about where women's testimony is not valued so the news was willing to you know have a very public national discussion at the expense of this survivor without ever actually giving their audience her description of the events. So, you know, you're under this impression that this kind of, um, you know, bad date, like he wasn't a nice guy, maybe he was rude, maybe he didn't, you know, he just, he was pushy, but ultimately mm -hmm. it was a situation that like, you know, two adults, it didn't rise to the level of abuse. It rose to the level of somebody not using their manners. That is not at all what that situation was, right? But that's how it was described yeah. because her testimony was not what was important. And so mm, it's just another yeah. it's just another kind of example of how rather than saying, wait, what is she saying happened and what does this mean? Instead, we're, we want to say, how dare she come forward with this? Think about what it's going to do with Ansari's career. Yeah, well, but we see that so often. I mean, we did a, several shows on a couple of years ago that football team in Ohio that, you know, uh, uh, raped a, an unconscious girl and they put it in the video and da 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 and and there were there there was a criminal trial and oh my God, the community coming forward against that young woman saying you're ruining their careers. They have a career right. ahead of them and they have a bright future. You're ruining it. It seems like throughout history, whenever we've had a situation like this. We worry so much about what's going to happen to the perpetrator's career. Yeah. Um, and I don't hear a lot of discussion. I, I don't have a huge experience with sexual harassment, but I have enough of it to know that you pull back, you don't do things, you don't charge ahead like you would have if you're experiencing that. And yes. so what about the women's careers? What about these young women who were harassed and it changed the path, their career trajectory, if you will? Um, what about the loss to our society and culture because these women were stifled uh, and not able to just charge ahead and have the glowing long-term career that men did? But again, exactly. playing devil's advocate here, you're going to have people say, "Well, buck up and do it." You know, that's what people do. You do you think? Do you think nothing bad ever happened to these men who were able to charge ahead and make sterling careers? You know, it, it's such a different standard. And sometimes, honest to goodness, sometimes I think, 
you know, I hear young women especially saying, well, we've come so far, da, 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 da. They don't see any need for feminism or, you know, any kind of radical, you know, involvement. And, and I just think, no, I don't think things really have changed that much. I, I just don't sometimes. No, I, I think that, and I think that they're, um, you know, kind of off of what what about these women's careers. So one, when we are making a workplace uncomfortable for a, a major, or half, if not more, of the workforce, um, what are we losing in talent, in brains, in wisdom, in experience? What are we losing as a nation, um, as a workforce, when we are literally pushing women that otherwise were qualified because they got hired, right, to be in this job, and they leave because their boss won't stop touching them, or their coworker yeah. won't stop asking them on, on dates, or somebody keeps following them to work and nobody will take it seriously, right? What are we losing yeah. there? Um, and I think, you know, we we kind of started in kind of the the micro level, but I think on a macro level, when you say, you know, yes, we can all agree that sexual assault is terrible, but what about, you know, but is it, is sexual harassment really as bad or, you know, kind of that playing that devil's advocate again, what I would encourage people to look at for themselves, you know, don't take my word for it. Um, what are the long-term consequences or side effects of sexual harassment and long-term abuse on individuals? And I can tell you, they include PSD. PTSD, attempted suicide, uh, substance abuse, depression, anxiety, high blood pressure, autoimmune diseases. There are real long-term effects of stress and abuse that happen to people. Um, and so those well, I think are, you're, you're, out, you're, you're outlining yeah, a lot of physical things, but I've also just got done reading a study that associated obesity with right. uh, sexual trauma. So, right. you know, so the I body mean, finds a lot of ways to cope um, or to survive trauma. Um, and what, what is that stress on our healthcare system? What is that stress on our workforce? What is that stress in our homes? What is that stress on law enforcement? Um, you know, if, if we are not um, giving, if we are sending women to unsafe and hostile environments for 8 to 10 to 12 hours a day, um, what is that doing? And again, I do want to point out that women are not the only gender, gender category that experience um, sexual assault or sexual harassment amongst trans individuals it skyrockets you look at um, trans populations and we're looking at around 50 percent will experience some kind of sexual assault in their lifetime harassment in the workplace is skyrocketed in those populations and men absolutely experience it in the workplace they experience sexual assault we it's underreported and we don't talk about it um, so they're often left out of the conversation but they are absolutely victims and survivors of of these things and so what are we doing if if we're not protecting individuals in the workforce, um, you know, both to our workforce, but also to our community when they leave, when they clock out of work. Um, I think if we put it in that perspective, we all have an investment in this issue. Yeah, I think so too. Um, you know, when we're talking about, you know, the Harvey Weinsteins and the, you know, the, the um, you know, these famous cases, that seems to be where the discussion is. But in fact, a recent research that I, I saw from Promunda, which is a, a, a mm -hmm. feminist men's organization, showed that um, nearly a third of young men uh, under, I'm looking at the age, I think it's under 24, had, had confessed that they had made sexually harassing comments to a woman in the past. 
Yes. A third. So we're raising young men to think that this is acceptable behavior, Um, kind of a nudge, nudge, wink, wink kind of thing. But on the other hand, and again, devil's advocate here, um, does everybody have to walk on eggshells because you might take offense? Well, I, you know, I think that I, I get that question sometimes. Um, I think for the real majority, so we have that one-third number, so that means two-thirds of men aren't participating in this behavior, right? Um, and right. maybe maybe they might. Um, well, two-thirds of them did not admit won't to admit to it. behavior. Right, won't admit to it. But I, I really truly think, you know, I, I work with, uh, I've worked with a lot of men. I know a lot of men. And the vast majority of them do not sexually harass me or my coworkers. You know, they, we have great working relationships, and there's lots of mutual respect and care between us. Um, and so, the, I think it's important to put out there that the va- that not I shouldn't the majority of men um, are it comes quite naturally to them to treat. Um, their coworkers, or or more specifically, maybe women with empathy and respect, and that it's not difficult for them. They don't feel like they're walking on eggshells um, by you know by not or to not sexually harass, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then there's this other third that I think what is happening is actually um, you know to a certain degree, it's we're we're asking for behavior to change, and that feels wrong. It feels wrong that somebody might ask you to change your behavior because you're making them feel uncomfortable. But we do this in in lots of different ways in lots of different spaces. You know, most people do not wear bikinis to their office job. That would make other people in the building feel uncomfortable and it would be inappropriate for the work environment, right? So as adults, we subscribe to this idea that we're allowed to ask each other as adults to, you know, participate in certain behaviors at the workplace so that we can all be comfortable and efficient. And so one, you know, I think it is um I, I, if, if, to me, for me, it falls on deaf ears. This idea that somehow we're asking too much because, again, the majority of men are quite capable of working with women without sexually harassing them. Um, women are capable of working with women and men without sexually harassing them for the vast majority of men and, of women. Um, and you know, really, what we're asking is for people to not say things that are disrespectful, right? Um, not to say, you know, we're not. These are these are negative requests, not affirmative requests. We're asking people to not, you know, continue to ask somebody out on dates if they've already said no. We're asking people to not expose their bodies to people that haven't consented to seeing their bodies exposed. You know, we're asking people to not do these things um, that, you know, um, are inappropriate at the workplace. And so this idea that it's eggshells, I don't really, I, I don't see that as being truthful. I, I feel like that's more of kind of a rhetorical argument for I shouldn't have to change my behavior. I should be able to do what I want because I'm an adult and this is a free country kind of attitude. When really it's kind of like I shouldn't have to do things that will make um, women or people of color or um, you know LGBT community members feel more comfortable at the workplace because I just don't want to. Um, you know, and that conversation I think we need to be honest about what are we really saying um, when we say, you know, I'm walking on eggshells. What does this all come down to? Does this all come down to power? Yes. Rape, sexual assault, sexual harassment, 
stalking, um, fondling, exposure, um, all of these crimes, all of these assaults are assaults of power. They are ultimately not um, sexually motivated. Um, they, they are about establishing hierarchy and dominance and power and feeling in control or feeling powerful or feeling like you're not the butt of the joke or you're not the lowest on the totem pole. Um, that's what these crimes are ultimately about. And so, you know, it doesn't need to be a conversation about, well, what's the right gendered term or what's the PC term? It needs to be a conversation about how do I how do I look at my coworkers as humans who are empowered and equal and deserve equal respect as me, right? Those are the, mm. that's the root of the conversation and we get bogged down in kind of the, the rest of the, the, the first level of all of this, the skin level of everything. That being said though, I do know some people who are terrifically touchy, just terrifically touchy. And, and oh, if yeah. you don't say the right word, or if you say a politically incorrect term, I mean, it, it, you can be doing it, uh, you know, I mean, with no malice at all, um, or mm-hmm. perhaps through ignorance, perhaps through, you know, and people will just jump all over them. Um, yes. I mean, I've, I've talked to some colleagues that are afraid to say what they truly think about certain issues because they don't, you know, they, they don't want to be jumped on. Uh, or I'm, perceived I'm, as something evil and awful and horrible and sexist. You know, like my like my colleague last night, you know, when we were doing the show uh, and he was talking about masculinity and he was, he really, he was quite reticent. He was going, this is what I'm feeling. I'm feeling this, but I don't want everybody to think I'm horrible. I don't want everybody mm-hmm. to think that I'm not supportive of women. I don't want everybody, you know. Uh, and so mm-hmm. sometimes I think that these prohibitions stifle true communications and then everybody just goes into their hidey hole and instead of dealing with a problem we're just making sure we tippy toe around it and we we all know um people that are particularly sensitive or we all know people that are particularly dense right um we 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 recognize that some people you know that there's a person maybe at your office that you know is always committing this one faux pas and and so I think that some of this is we just kind of need to trust ourselves a little bit to remain the humans that we are and and when we start discussing things like sexual harassment, that we know that we are already as a community pretty good at self-policing. So harassment is a pattern of behavior, right? So it's not somebody makes a mistake, they are corrected, maybe emphatically, but they are corrected and they decide to not make that mistake again. Or somebody says something unintentionally hurtful and when, you know, confronted with that hurt, they say, oh, that was not my intention. I, you know, I I was trying to communicate, but I definitely did not want to, you know, make you feel uncomfortable. I'm sorry about that. You know, when those kinds of authentic interactions happen, um, very rarely does that result in an escalation of hostility. Um, And so I think part of this is, you know, um, it's not so, I think it's not so much that, you know, a person who is regularly treating their coworkers with respect and dignity and care and is, uh, you know, a good coworker um, makes a mistake or misreads a situation and then they are out the door and their reputation is ruined. I don't think that, I think most of us can agree that that's not typically how things work. Um, and so a lot of it is, you know, the people that should be concerned are the ones that are participating in a pattern of behavior um, that, you know, affects 
the people that they work with. Um, that's where we're. That's where we see a lot of these issues. And honestly, that's where you actually see resolution um, is is in that pattern of behavior because that's what can be established and kind of made evident. Let's back up again and talk a little bit about what's included. What's included when we talk about sexual inappropriateness? Um, oh, yeah. Surely, just like everything else in life, there is, a, a, you know, there are gradations. Mm-hmm. Everybody's clear that rape, totally not acceptable sexual right. contact. Um, what, where, where, where is the other end of the spectrum? I mean, I, I'm thinking back to my first job out of college, and, and everybody knew that when you went into Mr. X's office, you hugged the wall. You hug the wall because otherwise Mr. X would come up and he'd start rubbing your shoulders. He'd start pinching your rear end, you know. And so every woman who was hired was immediately told that when you go into Mr. X's office, you keep your back against the wall. And then that way it won't happen to you. Well, is that harassment? Was I harassed because I had to learn to put my back against the wall in Mr. X's office? What's the continuum here? So, so assault so if he's putting his hands on you without your consent, um, that would actually be considered an assault. So, so rape is penetration um, by a sex object or a foreign object, right? So that's what we're talking about when we talk about rape. Sexual assault is this big umbrella of lots of different kind of experiences that one might have. It could be being forced to perform a sex act on somebody else. It could be being fondled or molested. It could be being um, experiencing um, uh, an attempted rape. So they were not successful, but they tried to. Um, It could be uh, stalking. Um, So it can be a couple of uh, a wide variety of different behaviors fall under that kind of umbrella of sexual assault. And under that umbrella, there is also rape. Right. Um, And then harassment is um, creating a environment um, that is with it's kind of creating a hostile environment around um, sexual orientation or sexuality. So unwelcome sexual advances, requests for sexual favors, um, you know, verbal or sexual harassment. So uh, or I'm sorry, verbal or physical harassment. So assault can be part of a harassment. Um, so they're kind of, you got to kind of think of them as Venn diagrams. So they can overlap, but they can also exist separately. And then kind of creating a culture of hostility. But what's really important about harassment is it's a it's a pattern of behavior. It's a, it's a culture of a, either an individual or a place that has been cultivated over time and instances. Um, you know, so, so misreading um, a sign that maybe your coworker um, is interested in you and you say, would you like to get a drink one night after work? While that might be deemed inappropriate in your workspace, if that person says, no, I would not like to, and you say, okay, you know, I'm, I misread the situation. Thank you. Um, and then you don't ask again and you don't change the way you behave towards them and you're still kind and, you know, respectful and all of those things that would not necessarily rise to the level of harassment. It, it might be inappropriate and it might cause, um, uncomfortable feelings in that individual. And then you, that needs to be dealt with. But, um, harassment a lot of times is kind of the, the pattern, the creation of, of a culture or an environment that is uncomfortable and, and hostile. Um, and so, you know, we try to, to, to talk to, especially when we do trainings, to talk to people about, you know, 
um, how do you respond when, um, you know, how do you deal with an instance of harassment or an instance that made you uncomfortable? Like, how do you deal with that? How do you move forward from that? And a lot of times, if that person is apologetic and then does not do it again, that's kind of where the, the issue ends. It's when that person participates in a pattern that it becomes an issue. Do you think that the whole hashtag MeToo movement has distorted um, any of these explanations? No. And this is, and the reason I say no, just kind of full stop, is um, sexual assault and sexual harassment and the things that, the traumas that we experience as individuals are individuals. Um, and so if we're going to have a conversation about sexual assault, it's going to need to be big and messy and crowds um, kind of crowd shared. And um, it's going to need to have um, debates and, and confusion and convolution and all of those things because sexual assault is a messy, scary, um, big problem. And so we need to have as many different conversations and as many different perspectives putting in there. Um, two cents as possible if we're going to do this right, if we're going to actually deal with what sexual assault means for every individual that experiences it. If you were a young man right now, what would be your biggest concerns in interacting with women at the office, uh, socially? What would be your biggest concern if you were a young man right now? You know, I don't think I would have too much of a concern because I, you know, I see men and women as humans that I'm going to act professionally and responsibly and, and respectfully with, um, kind of regardless of what situation I, I'm in. I don't find it difficult to not make a coworker feel uncomfortable, or I don't, I don't find it difficult to, you know, um, separate my romantic life from my professional life. Um, those are the things that I think are asked of us as professionals. And so I think as a young man kind of working with women in the workplace, my primary concerns are going to be, how do we achieve this project that's up next? Um, you know, how do I make sure that we're working together efficiently? Um, how do I make sure that we're getting the grant money that we needed? You know, I, I'm not going to be thinking about them as and their sex. I'm going to be thinking about them as a coworker and the projects that we work on together in our shared mission. Um, and so I guess as a young man, my, my primary concern with my female co coworkers would be what project are we working on? Um. Okay. I, I, I will jump in there and say I'm not sure that sounds terrifically realistic. I mean, men and women, women and women, men and men, I mean, there, if there's genders are, are attracted to each other. There is a sexual component in our lives. Um, I, I mean, you go to the movies and you can kind of get the hots for one of the movie stars. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that what you're describing as your uh, ideal um, reaction would in fact be ideal. I think it would be uh, a challenge for a lot of people to completely dissociate any kind of sexual component from interactions. I mean, even when you go to the grocery store or whatever, you know, I mean, there's a little flirting going on. Um, not overt, but just kind of a little, eh, you know, pleasant stuff that you, then you go home and you forget about it. Um, maybe, I don't know where I'm going with that, but I think that, that so, you know, well, you, what, you, you. what you describe is pretty ideal. Right. So if this is really if this is really just we got to deal with the fact that men and women are attracted to get, to each other or whoever men and men are attracted to to each other women yeah. and women are attracted to each other um then why is it that 
men in 95% of the cases in the Defense Department and 86% of the cases in EEOC in 2016 reported cases of harassment were perpetrated by women. Like, why, if this is really just an issue of attraction and sexuality, because women have sexualities, they are sexual creatures, they have attraction, you know, they feel um, sexually motivated and they flirt and all of those things. Why is it that um, women are not perpetrating sexual harassment, even though they also have sexualities that are equally as important to their individuality and kind of identity. What is what is the disconnect here? I think what it is is that what we're seeing is it is not just an issue of attraction. It's an issue of power and dominance. And the problem okay. is, is that point. when people yeah, when people are being told no, they're not hearing that, and they don't care to hear you it. You know, I want to jump in here because there, I, there's a, a little magazine that I read out of uh, Massachusetts called uh, Voice Mail, M-A-L-E. And in that latest, the spring issue of that, there's an article about um, uh, t- titled Time for a New Definition of Consent. And one of the, the bold sections you know, in that is it says sometimes yes does not mean yes. Sometimes yes means it's easier for me to do this than to say no. Sometimes yes means maybe. Often it means I'd rather say yes than hurt your feelings. That spoke to me because I think that women understand that. We all understand that. I think a lot of men do not understand that. I think that there's a basic disconnect between the way men interpret language and the way women interpret language. But that's a whole different show, and that's my opinion. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm I think that at- yeah, no, that might there might be some um, there there might be truth to we're not giving young men and young women good sex education or good education about healthy relationships and establishing boundaries. And we're, you know, we kind of teach young men that women have to be convinced and things like that, that, you know, so, so yes, I think that we send mixed signals um, about, you know, how, how much of a agent women are going to be in their own sex lives. And that might make men think that a lukewarm yes is what they're looking for. But on the other hand, you know, in in those in those sentences, what was what one I'm interested in is where are they getting that information? So who are they, you know, who are they saying we yeah. crowd surfed this many men and this is what they say? Or is this kind of they're just saying, well, this is what the man, you know, capital yeah. M. Well, um, and, and actually that's an I'm looking at the clock, Jennifer, and, and we're running oh, out of time here very rapidly. So I think what we need to do is a different show. We need to answer some of those questions. And in fact, that's why I have this article in the tickler file to find out where this came from. Uh, and so I'm going to be tracking that down. Jennifer Hunt, thank you so much for for doing this conversation with me. I really appreciate it. If people want to contact the Sexual Assault Resource Center, how do they how do they get there? Absolutely, you can call us on a twenty four seven crisis hotline number at nine seven nine seven three one one thousand. That will always go to a local trained. Um, sexual assault advocate. They can refer you to local resources if you're not in Texas, or they can help you just by talking over things, getting you to resources, getting you information, helping you to figure out what your options are. Again, that number is 979-731-1000. Or if you'd rather send us an email, you can send it to reachingout at sarcbv.org. That's sarc, um, b as in boy, v as in valley.org. 
Jennifer Hunt, thank you so much. I'm sure this conversation will continue in many arenas, and I thank you for your input to our uh, conversation and to my understanding of it. Thank you for listening. Join us next week on Three Women, Three Ways.